Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Richmond this morning. Um, so nice to have you all with us. Uh, and we are starting a new series in 1 Peter today. Um, I want to say thank you uh, for the way that we've journeyed together through the Psalms of Lament. Uh, I think it's been a really great thing, a courageous thing for our church to take on such a difficult um, topic, to sit in some hard and dark places. Uh, but I'm really, really thankful and uh, really proud, actually, of the way that we together have sat with each other in those spaces have opened up together, have been vulnerable together uh, with what's happening inside of us, uh, what's happening in the darkest parts of us. Uh, and many of us have cried together in the last month. Uh, and I think that's something that's really, really helpful and something that's really mature for us to spend some time in that space. Um, we're moving into a different space today. For some of you, you can breathe a sigh of relief uh, that we can move into a new letter. But uh, the more I've spent time in this letter from 1 Peter also recognize that there isn't many parts of the Bible that we can open together and not be confronted, challenged, transformed, questioned in some way. But hopefully we'll be encouraged too. King Jesus once said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was saying these words to his friends as they wrestled with the death of their brother. And we read these words last week with Tammy as she walked us through the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus from John chapter 11. And after Jesus said these words, he would powerfully demonstrate that the resurrection promise was both a now and a not yet as he raised Lazarus back to life. It was powerful now as he raised his friend to life and a not yet as he pointed forward to another future resurrection. His most powerful demonstration came when he himself rose from the dead after suffering a brutal crucifixion. Jesus was resurrected into a new way of being, both human and and divine, a moment where heaven and earth came together in him. King Jesus' resurrection was a moment of cosmic significance as all that evil could summon was exhausted, death could not hold him, and an invitation to a new way of life was given to humanity, an invitation to discover what it means to truly live, to live as truly human. And his resurrection was also a foretaste of something wonderful in the future where all things in heaven and on earth will be brought together and life as we know it will be renewed and reformed. Now the Christian faith is as simple as trusting your life to the risen King Jesus and then learning to live a new way of life in the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. It means experiencing life in a whole new way and celebrating the good and the beautiful that God has brought to life in the people and the world around you. And the experience of many new followers of Jesus, maybe this is your experience too, is a new lease on life, a renewed sense of identity and purpose and passion. At the same time, the Christian faith is as complex and challenging as trusting your life every part of it, small and big, to Jesus. And then being daily renewed and transformed into Jesus' likeness in the midst of suffering and decay and darkness. And the experience of many followers of Jesus is a journey of holding faith in him in difficult seasons, raising questions of doubt and complaint to God, wondering where and when God will act to end the suffering that exists in here or out there. Over the last few weeks, we've been practicing holding faith in those difficult moments as we journeyed through these psalms of lament. 
In the middle of his own suffering and the suffering of the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul would later write, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He knew that the resurrection of Jesus could change his life, the life of those he was writing to. But he also knew that life following Jesus wasn't easy. And the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, also knew that the resurrection changes everything. And in the letter that we are opening today, he makes this clear statement, May God be blessed. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, his mercy is abundant, and so he has become our Father in a second birth, into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead of Jesus, the Messiah. This verse captures the heart of the letter Peter writes to the followers of Jesus, scattered across cities and countries in what we would now call Eastern Europe. A letter written to encourage them with the hope found in the risen King Jesus as they tried to live hopefully and faithfully in a changing world. That kind of sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? Trying to figure out together as followers of Jesus, as the people of Richmond, what it means to hold faith in him, to have hope in him in a complex and changing world. And in this first passage, Peter establishes some of the core parts of the Christian worldview. And he's particularly wanting these followers of Jesus that he writes to, to understand and live out of their new identity. In this first part of the letter, Peter wants his, the followers of Jesus to know that God himself has become their father, birthing a new life within them and a new life for them to live as they are transformed by mercy and love. He wants them to know that they are people chosen for the purpose of being signposts to the new reality of a new world. He wants them to know that they are people living a strange double life as dual citizens. He wants them to know that they are people living through suffering in the hope of God's mercy. That they are people who live as set apart for God in every part of who they are and at every level. People who live in faith and in hope in God. And the question I want us to ask as we read along is, how does that help our imagination of life and hope as the people of God today? And at the end, I want to ask that question and give us some time and space to talk about it as we hold the book of 1 Peter open together this morning. Let me pray again as we jump into these words. King Jesus, we want to lift our hearts, our eyes, ourselves to the hope we have in you. I pray for those who need encouragement this morning that your spirit might fill us with that hope. That we might be able to trust, to offer ourselves every part of who we are to you in hope. And Jesus, for those of us who are comfortable, I pray that the questions of how to live differently might confront us, challenge us, question us, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. As a community, we pray that we'll be inspired to lift our eyes, to, to grow up together in you, Jesus. We offer ourselves to you, Jesus, as listening people this morning, as people who want to continue to be changed by you. We pray this together in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Let me read again for us that verse I've already read from chapter 1, verse 3. May God be blessed. 
God the Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. His mercy is abundant, and so he has become our Father in a second birth into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead of Jesus the Messiah. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be born again, to go through a rebirth into a new identity as children of God. God, the God we might fear and hide from and avoid and pretend is not there, the God that we might complain to or accuse or even hate, becomes our Father. We are invited into a relationship with God through Jesus. As Peter writes to these scattered Christians living amongst different cultures and religions and moralities, he reminds them of their new identity in Jesus. And at the heart of becoming a Christian is a shift in who we are and whose we are. We now have a new way of life and a new loyalty. Miroslav Volf, one of my favorite people to read, puts it this way. He says, at the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture with its gods to the God of all cultures. No longer is our identity defined by the gods of our culture. In our place and time, that would be our jobs or the suburb that we live in or the amount of money that we have or our sporting accomplishments or the success of our children. Our loyalty shifts from the gods of our culture to the God of all cultures. No longer do we identify first as the race or subculture or career or family that we come from. I am no longer Elliot the New Zealander. I am not Elliot the son of the Keynes. I am not Elliot the pastor. I am Elliot the son of Father God, follower of King Jesus. This becomes my primary identity. We identify as children of God, followers of Jesus. And there is a shift in who we are. My identity changes and my loyalty changes. And this new identity is not something we can earn or buy. It is a gift from God. It is because of his abundant mercy. God becomes your father, not because you've been good enough or tried hard enough, but because of his great compassion and love, he chose to invite us to be his children, to adopt us into his family. And he accepts you as you are, where you are. No matter your story, you cannot do more to earn his love. You cannot do more in order to gain his mercy. His invitation has already been made to you to become his child. He sees you and he knows you and he values you and he honors you and he embraces you. Do you know this? Do you know this in, you, in your heart of hearts, in the core of who you are, that you are a daughter? of the living God, that you are a son of the living God, accepted, loved, valued, brought into his family without condemnation, can enter his presence without fear. <coughs> Once you know this, it changes everything. 
If you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been reborn as a child of God, loved, accepted, and included. And now you live a strange double life. When I was nine, our family moved to Cambodia. We lived in a town called Kompong Som uh, for almost a year. It was the main port city of Cambodia. We didn't speak Khmer. We didn't understand local customs. We relied on a driver and a translator. And in the mid-90s, we also relied on protectors, guards, carrying AK-47s paid to protect our compound, to protect us from the very real danger of living in a country where in just the months before, Westerners had been kidnapped and killed. A very real and present danger. Some have suggested that my parents were a little bit crazy taking us over there. And we're about the age they were, with the same age kids now. And I wonder what sort of decision we would make to head over there. But at the end of that year, in 94, we left quickly as the situation worsened. It got even more dangerous in Cambodia at that time. And then we moved to Australia. And it was here, and not in Cambodia, that I felt different. I blended in a bit better here. I looked more like the people around me, but I spoke a little different. In primary school, I wanted to lose my accent so I could blend in. And then in high school, I wanted it back because accents were popular. I didn't understand some normal parts of Australian life, like football. I didn't understand how to handball or how to tackle above the knees. I didn't understand the food. When I ordered a hot dog, it was a battered sausage on a stick, not a sausage in bread. That confused me. And I didn't understand footwear. We should wear jandals, not thongs. The list goes on. There's so many things, and you guys can have some fun with that later. I know you'll tell me some things about Kiwis that I should know. Now, I still live as a dual citizen. I hope that means I can still be a pastor here, because I know it means I can't run as a politician. <laughs> and sometimes my loyalty is questionable, particularly in a Rugby World Cup year. But there were times when I couldn't quite figure out how to live well between cultures. And Peter writes this letter to scattered Christians who are living as dual citizens. Peter calls them exiles and foreigners. You can see it in verse 1. The word translated scattered here is the word diaspora, or diaspora, which is the word normally given to Jews not living in their homeland. And Peter, writing to these Christians, applies this word to them. He says, dear followers of Jesus, you are diaspora, scattered exiles. And the word that is translated exiles here is probably better translated for us to understand resident aliens or sojourners. People who live for a time in a place. Now, a sojourner is not a tourist. You live in a place that you're not a citizen of, but you're not a tourist. You speak the language, you know how to get around, where to shop, the best local coffee places. You have local friends and you know your neighbours, but you're somehow different. You're not a citizen, but you're also not a tourist. What Peter is saying is that's what it is like to live as followers of Jesus, to live this strange double life, living as sojourners, as resident aliens. I felt like that for a while as a Kiwi living in Australia, a resident alien. Thanks for including and accepting me now. But that's kind of what it feels like, doesn't it? As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're not tourists here, but we don't really feel at home. 
We're fluent in the language and way of life, but we feel maybe as though we should move on. Our citizenship, our home, is in the renewed world of the future, when heaven and earth come together. We feel comfortable here. There's a familiarity with the way of life here, but we're also restless, yearning, groaning even, for something else. Can you feel it? That strange tension as a follower of Jesus? As followers of Jesus, there will always be struggle. There will be frustration. There will be a wrestle as we continue to figure out what it means to live in this time and place as resident aliens. Part of it is because we know that things the way they are are not right. That things are not as they should be. We see that in the world around us, don't we? But I think we also know it and see it in our own hearts. And we long for a day when it will all be made right. As followers of Jesus too, we can see that the way we are living was not the way life was meant to be. And like an object found in an op shop, we're brought back to life, transformed, and can now live as though we were meant to be used. I think this is what Peter is getting at later in this chapter. From verse 18, let me read it. I'm reading from uh, the Bible for Everyone translation. You know, after all, that you were ransomed from the fruitile practices inherited from your ancestors, and that this ransom came not through perishable things like gold or silver, but through the precious blood of the Messiah, like a lamb without spot or blemish. He was destined for this from the foundation of the world and appeared at the end of the times for your sake. For you who through him believe in the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's reminding these followers of Jesus that they have been reclaimed. Ransomed is the word used here. Reclaimed into a new way of life. And the ransom, the price that was paid, was his life. And just as Jesus has been brought back to life, Peter says, you have been raised to new life. Sarah this week is moving into a space in a run-down strip of shops on South Road. She's setting up an artist workshop there. You can have fun celebrating with her after she comes out from helping with the kids. And in a way that people like Sarah can, she has already breathed new life into that space and into that strip of shops. Many of the pieces of furniture she's using were things that were once run down and discarded, and now they're reclaimed and repurposed, filled with life and hope. And her space already has become a beacon of light in an otherwise dusty and dark strip of shops on a very busy main road. In a similar way, Jesus has reclaimed your life, my life, from a destiny of dust and doom to be renewed and repurposed. The old made new. Peter's reminding us that because of the resurrection of King Jesus, we too are being brought back to life in him, reclaimed and repurposed. Back up a bit further in this chapter from verse 13, let me read. So fasten your belts, the belts of your minds, keep yourselves under control. Set your hope completely on the grace that will be given you when Jesus the Messiah is revealed. As children of obedience, don't be squashed into the shape of the passions you used to indulge when you were still in ignorance. Rather, just as the one who called you is holy, so be holy yourselves in every aspect of behavior. It is written, you see, 
Be holy, for I am holy. Peter is calling the followers of Jesus to not go back to the old way of life. He's, he's saying, don't think that you should go on living as you once did. You have been gifted a new identity and now have a new way of life. Live now as you were meant to live, set apart for God. Peter quotes Leviticus here when he says, It is written, Be holy, for I am holy. I'm not going to ask you to go back and read all of Leviticus now to get the context of those few words. But he quotes Leviticus here, not because he wants them to remember a list of what not to do, which is perhaps what we might think of when we think of those first few books of the Old Testament. What Peter is wanting to draw his readers' minds to, our minds to, is that Leviticus was a list of things that were given new and holy purpose. There is a whole list of things in there that are reclaimed and repurposed, set aside for worshipping God. And Peter points to God saying, be holy for I am holy, to help us understand that, they have been, that we have been repurposed, set apart for God's purposes, that we've been called to live differently. I'll quote a commentator on this here. It says, of course, to be holy means moral behavior, but these words in Leviticus 11 that Peter quotes here are not given in the context of moral commands and prohibitions to people, but in the context of ceremonial restrictions dealing with clean and unclean things. For belonging to God, living on his terms, reserving ourselves for him, delighting in him, obeying him, honoring him, these are more fundamental than the specifics of obedience we label morality. In other words, this commentator is saying Peter is calling the followers of Jesus to a new understanding of their identity as belonging to God, obeying his new way to live, pointing to him as the one over all things and delighting in all that he is and gives us to. It can be easy to hear and read a letter like this and jump straight to religious do's and don'ts trying to think that that's the response that God wants. But actually, Peter is reminding us that in the resurrection of Jesus, we have been ransomed, reclaimed, and repurposed, called to be set apart for God's purposes, to live out what we were meant to live out all along, life in relationship with him, life in right relationship with one another, life in right relationship with the world around us. So what have we been repurposed to? I'm going to summarize all of what Jesus says in just a few words, in my words. In King Jesus, we are gifted a new identity, invited into a new way of life, and commissioned as kingdom agents in our neighborhoods and cultures. The Great Commission says, go and make disciples. The go we need to hear is not necessarily to go into an overseas situation but to go into our own culture as brave agents on a mission filled with drama and danger. We are called to live out a different way of being human. We are chosen to be representatives of the only one who ever was truly human. We are commissioned to be announcers pointing people to King Jesus and adventurers living radically as we create with God new communities of hope and light 
within the culture that we live in of distracted people, deceived people, lost in the darkness people. That's our repurpose. That's the commission we've been given. That's the invitation, the new way of life that we are called into living out. Peter puts in here a quick little test for us to know if we are being renewed. How's that going for us? Verse 22, he says, Once your lives have been purified by obeying the truth, resulting in a sincere love for all your fellow believers, love one another eagerly from a pure heart. I think Peter's just throwing in here a little test for the people that he's writing to. Do you want to know if you're being renewed? Here's the easy test. See how you're going with loving the people in the community that you're part of. So the question for us is, how are we going? One of the conversations I've had with many people in our church family in the last couple of weeks, lots of people, is a desire, yearning for us to love one another deeply. A desire to be loved and cared for. A desire to give ourselves to others in that way. This is not the only way we know we're being transformed and repurposed. Of course, our call is bigger than just our community. But Peter's asking the question, so I think we should ask ourselves that question too. Is there an instinctive overflow of love from within you, in practice, not just in aspiration? Is there an overflow of love for the people sitting around you? Peter returns to where he began as he finishes off this first part of the letter. He goes back to the new birth. It says in verse 23, You have been born again, not from seeds which decay, but from seed which does not, through the living and abiding word of God. Because you see, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. That is the word that was announced to you. In Jesus, in his resurrection, in his gift to us, a new hope has dawned in us. One, Peter says, a hope that is not built on the hopes of the world that fade and die away. This hope is not like your career or your money or your beauty or your reputation or your children, which all fade away. This hope is built on the imperishable truth, Peter says, that Jesus is the risen king. And Peter actually quotes Isaiah here, who prophesied that, the one, that someone would come. It's part of the passage in Isaiah that points to the suffering servant, that points forward, that paints all sorts of signposts pointing forward to Jesus. And just as those signposts, those promises from God came true, Peter says, they'll come true again that our hope in the risen king is sure and certain. Peter's reminding the followers of Jesus here that the hopes of the world are in things that pass away, that fade away. But the hopes of kingdom people are in the risen King Jesus, an imperishable hope. Want to know what you're living for? Think about what you hope for. Want to know what we're living for? Think about what we're hoping for. Is it in the truth of the risen King Jesus? Or is it in things that fade away? 
Peter finishes off this first passage that we're looking at together, continuing with the theme of being a newborn. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all evil, all deceitful, hateful malice, and all ill-speaking. He's saying you don't no longer need to live that way. That's the old way. As newborn babies, he says, long for the spiritual milk, the real stuff, not watered down. That is what will make you grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, Peter said, maybe Richmond, we need to hear these words. Stop living like you used to live. Stop craving the infantile ways of the world, Peter says. Instead, grow up and crave a new way of life. Peter says, if you've tasted it a bit, you'll know you'll want more. There's two ways we can ask this question of ourselves, I think. One's for ourselves. What are we craving? Is our time, our attention, our energy, our hopes in the things of this world? In the things that we've been called out from? Or is it in King Jesus? In his abundant mercy, trusting in him? The other question I think we can ask is, What are we together, as a church family, craving? Are we growing up together? One of the things that we think the Spirit of God is calling Richmond into is a maturing phase of life. As we deal with deeper, more real things, as we crave deeper love for one another, we could be okay with the way things are. But what I'm hearing I think what we're hearing the Spirit call us into, the questions that I hear from you, the conversations that we've had, even in recent weeks, have been deeper, more real things. Things of the resurrection, new life in dark places, dealing honestly and vulnerably with the places where we're still craving the things of old, desiring to love one another more deeply as family, Something in us, something in our conversation that's calling us to give ourselves away more generously to our neighbourhood, to our friends, to invite more people to find out more about Jesus. To be brighter lights of creativity and beauty and love and neighbourliness as signposts to the risen King Jesus. Peter begins to unpack some of these themes more deeply as he goes through the letter. He raises some other things too. We'll have fun with them over the coming weeks. The question I want us to finish with as we begin this journey through 1 Peter that I want us to talk about together, I want you to talk about with the people around you is how does this reminder from Peter of our living hope in the risen King Jesus help you, help us to imagine life, to imagine your hope as the people of God today? How does it help you in the complexities of the changing world in which we live? What's been encouraging for you? What's challenging for you? What's got your attention from the Spirit of God today? Let me pray, and then that's actually how we're going to finish this morning, by answering some of those questions together. King Jesus, many of us here have tasted tasted part of who you are, what, that life-transforming power of God in us, the resurrection power, the same power that raised you from the dead, Jesus. 
I pray that you remind us, that you call us back to that hope, that living hope we have in you, Jesus. It can be hard sometimes to hold the tension between living well in the culture in which we find ourselves and living well as citizens of heaven. And we don't always get it right. It can get wearing. It's hard. There's much about our lives and our world that is still not right. But we want to cling to the hope we have in you, Jesus. We see in Jesus this glimpse of what will be. We see in each other this transforming power of what has changed in us. And Jesus, I hear in our spirit, our collective community spirit, from you, Jesus, a desire to grow up together, to deepen our love for one another, to crave more of you, King Jesus, to give more of ourselves away. Help us to to wrestle well with these questions, to open ourselves up, to be transformed, to become more like you, to be repurposed by you. And I want to pray for anyone this morning who is yet to discover their identity as your child, that this morning they might be embraced by you as a daughter, as a son of God. I pray that they might know just how deep and wide the love you have for them is, that you know them and accept them and value them and are with them and embrace them as they are, where they are. Jesus, we want to continue to have hope in you despite the hard things of life and because it's so easy to be distracted by what seems to be good in the life around us. Jesus, we are for you because you are the risen King. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's spend a few minutes answering those questions together, um, digging a bit deeper together, maybe craving that spiritual milk together, that more of the risen King Jesus together. Let's talk about that and then we'll share some coffee together.